Hello, listeners, and welcome to the 36th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I'm recording this week in Topeka, Kansas, which is a very pleasant little town. I'm here for work doing some photography and videography and have been uh, piloting a rental car for the past six hours or so, Uh, but more on that later. I have to be up early tomorrow to chase some trucks with a drone, so let's get right into it. Here are your top stories. General Motors is set to produce its final car in Australia this month, which is home to the GM-owned Holden brand. Uh, With the final Holden rolling off the line, so also ceases Australia's entire automotive production since uh, Ford and Toyota both pulled out earlier this year. Uh, Given rising production costs, limited availability of local suppliers, and, and efficiencies to be had by concentrating manufacturing at other plants around the world, it, it simply doesn't make sense for automakers to be producing cars down under anymore, which means the termination of thousands of assembly jobs there, which at one point were making the Pontiac GTOs for the North American market. While it's easy to get nostalgic for good things that we had and, and have gone away, and Top Gear did a, a couple really tear-jerker episodes about the death of the British vehicle manufacturing industry, and that's undoubtedly going to be happening in Australia as well. But the writing for this has been on the wall for years. I mean, much like here in the States, these manufacturing jobs, they just aren't coming back. Everything can be done either cheaper by machines or in countries where labor is less expensive as, as the cost of shipping assembled vehicles is lower than producing them locally, that local production is just going to go away. And it just goes to show that the problems that laborers here in the U.S. are having are not just unique to us. While they eliminate production in Australia, GM is making some big moves in the autonomous vehicle space uh, with a few announcements this week. The first was with the unveiling of their Silent Utility Rover Universal Superstructure, or Surus concept. Uh, It's basically a large battery and fuel cell powered skateboard um, on on a much larger scale. Uh, The Surus is meant for autonomous hauling of equipment across uneven terrain. The first thing that jumped in my mind when I saw this was Logan, the the new Wolverine movie. Early on in that movie, there's a scene where Logan is driving along a highway among just a flood of long-haul trucks, all of which are basically a moving autonomous platform with a cargo container on top of them. This looks pretty much exactly like that, but is built on GM's existing truck platforms and is meant to go off-road, so it can work for both military and civilian applications. It's really pretty badass, and though this particular model only has a 400-mile range, it could be an early glimpse of what all long-haul trucking is going to look like in the future. I mean, let's just hope the rest of the future isn't so much like the rest of Logan. I mean, great movie, bleak look at the future. Um, then GM, GM announced that uh, it has purchased Strobe, a company that makes LiDAR, uh, light detection and ranging system, which is critical to autonomous vehicles being able to see and respond to the world around them. 
sure, Strobe is just one of many companies producing a LiDAR system, but having an in-house company to work with GM's in-house autonomous vehicle company, Cruise Automation, will simplify the development process and, and streamline operations, allowing GM to develop vehicles more, more quickly and, and to have this bespoke technology that, uh, that more carefully integrates with their existing systems. I mean, now you see autonomous cars with gigantic, you know, radar and LIDAR arrays on top of them plopped like um, lights of uh, police vehicles. I mean, these could be much more seamlessly integrated into the cars now that GM has this company within their own company. So along with their partnerships with Lyft and, and the existing Super Cruise tech that they've rolled out in Cadillacs, GM really has all the pieces to build in uh, to build the, the level five autonomy puzzle. So we could start to see them really pull ahead of their competitors in this space. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Nationwide car sales in September finally ticked up for the first time this year, allowing automakers uh, to breathe a brief sigh of relief. But as you may have heard from me, this is largely due to the fact that about a million cars have been ruined from hurricanes recently, meaning that the owners of those totaled cars have had to go out and buy new ones. Um, this has prompted an artificial boost in sales numbers, and auto brands know that this isn't going to be a permanent reversal in the downward trend, so a number of them are taking steps to either improve or change the buying process in the hopes that that changing that process and removing that barrier will help turn things around. Uh, first, and, and this has been going on for a while, is, is the no-haggle pricing approach, which is becoming more widespread and is even uh, being trialed in some dealerships on used cars, as CarMax has been doing forever. Uh, Jalopnik's Tom McParland has a, has a really great article on the perils of working with dealerships that are no-haggle, um, with the key takeaway of his article being essentially that uh, just because you can't negotiate on the price doesn't mean that you're getting the best price. Uh, dealerships like CarMax, they, they build in the cost of their marketing and, and their own profit margin into their no-haggle prices. So you're always paying a premium, whereas dealerships that are pro-haggle might sell you a similar used car for cheaper in order to make their numbers, because they all have sales quotas every month, in order to get manufacturer incentives, incentives uh, which CarMax obviously does not get because they're not associated with the car brand. It's, it's all a, a very sordid process. And sure, no haggle means less hassle, but it could also mean less value, which is why it pays to do your homework and use resources like AutoList, which I check daily, or TrueCar, which helps compare offers across dealerships. Hyundai, however, is taking this no-haggle policy and adding a level of transparency to it. Um, and set to roll out next year, Hyundai will post the fair market value of their vehicles on their website, minus incentives and dealership discounts, so you know how much a car uh, is really supposed to cost. Of course, that fair market value is theirs to decide, and Kelly Blue Book or True Car may give differing numbers on that, so it still definitely pays to do your homework and research. But Hyundai will also deliver a vehicle to you to test drive and provide an online portal so that you can fill out most of your paperwork ahead of time if you do decide to buy. It, it's 
true that dealership experience is, is fraught with waitings and shading tactics. So uh, this more transparent approach is welcome, but let's not forget that these car companies, they're still out there to make money. Porsche, meanwhile, are offering a completely different approach to car ownership. Uh, ownership here being sort of loosely used. Um, the new Porsche Passport program, which was unveiled this week, is being offered to select clients in Atlanta, which is where Porsche's U.S. headquarters is, on a trial basis. Those 50 selected folks can pay either $2,000 or $3,000 a month and choose from a number of Porsches to drive for an unlimited amount of miles. <laughs> this cost includes insurance, tax, registration, and detailing, not to mention a healthy stack of ones for Porsche's already pretty fat wallet. Um, those opting for the cheaper, uh, cheap being a relative term, uh, program can choose from the 718 Boxster or Cayman S, Macan S, or Cayenne, while the richer people paying three grand a month can also select from the 911 Carrera S, Panamera 4S, Macan GTS, or Cayenne SE Hybrid. Uh, remember, Cadillac is also trying this sort of car share subscription service type of thing with its book program in New York, which proved so popular when they rolled it out that they had a waiting list. Um, this could catch on with more brands, or we could see it limited to both uh, the brands on the premium end and, and the brands on the cheap end, like Zipcar, which is more of like a pay-when-you-want-to-use-it sort of thing. But if I had to spare $65 a day to spend on the Porsche, and, and that's for the $2,000 a month program, I'd probably just test drive them all and pick my favorite and then just go buy it outright. Anyway, uh, that's your top story. Here are a couple headlines. While the entire country of France is said to be banning the sale of internal combustion cars by 2040, its most populous city is going a step further and stating their intention to ban all internal combustion vehicles from its roads by 2030. Paris has already had to implement temporary bans because of high particulate matter pollution, but now it's looking to pull all polluting cars from its streets in the next 13 years or so. It's not yet clear if this includes scooters or buses, which are some of the highest polluting, least regulated vehicles on the road, but it has a little while to figure that out. Many Parisians don't own cars, so a lot of the pollution comes from the city's many visitors, and residents are looking forward to getting back to a time when the only thing you could smell in the city's many walking plazas is other French people. In the U.S., only Ford sells more cars than Toyota, and that's thanks to the insanely popular F-150, which is purchased primarily by people who work in construction or by people who want to look like they work in construction. In Japan, though, things aren't shaping up as well for Toyota as the market shrinks much like it has done here in the U.S. for most of this year. Also unlike the U.S., Toyota offers many cars in Japan that they do not offer here, including 10 versions of tiny vans. Needless to say, Toyota has some cutting back to do, and over the next eight years, they plan to scale back from 60 models being offered to just 30. No word on which of the Voxy, Nova, Alphard, Pixis Mega, or Esquire, almost identically shaped minivans, will be culled. There's a growing body of statistics that say consumers just don't trust autonomous vehicles yet, which is natural because I don't even trust my coworkers to get me to lunch safety, so why would I trust a robot? 
Intel, which is deeply involved in the creation of autonomous vehicle software and technology, has decided that the perfect person to help assuage your fears about autonomous cars is King James himself. The new digital and broadcast ads feature a skeptical LeBron James being taken around the block in a car without a human driver, after which he enthusiastically tells his crew, I'm keeping this. Because when you're LeBron James, you can just say you're keeping things, and then you get to keep them. He's so relatable, it just makes sense that Intel chose him to be the face of scared Americans. In an effort to smooth over relations with riders who have sort of lost faith in a company that consistently makes all of the wrong moves, Uber has announced plans for an initiative that shows that they have their finger on the pulse of what is cool in 1995. This week, Uber announced partnerships with Westfield shopping malls wherein they will offer a lounge for riders awaiting pickups, as well as organized pickup and drop-off points around the malls. While not as completely tone-deaf as offering your employees tips for how to sleep with one another, Uber's latest strategy chooses to ignore that shopping malls across the country are closing down as buyers shift to either online or outlet mall shopping. When approached for comment about this fact, Uber's new CEO, Dara Kosrahani, said, Oh, as if! In new cars this week, a guy named Yuri in Russia has just come out with the Partisan One concept, which he calls the best vehicle for the worst roads. Now, I want you to picture a boxy military Humvee, then take all of those angled lines and then make them completely straight and at 90 degree angles. Okay, now you're picturing the Partisan One. Uh, it was designed to be as slab-sided as possible to allow for both the application of armor plating to the sides and bottom and to be packed as flat as possible, kind of like IKEA furniture. In fact, it's so flat packable, they say that they can fit five times as many vehicles into the shipping space that you might normally fit just one vehicle, which is impressive. Uh, just like IKEA furniture, though, there's the hassle of having to assemble the car once it arrives wherever it's headed. Um, also, unfortunately, it's powered by a Fiat 2.8-liter diesel engine making less than 150 horsepower, so if a lots-of-assembly-required bare-bones flat Russian truck powered by an unreliable Italian motor sounds like your kind of thing, well, that thing exists now for some reason, at least in, in concept form. Uh, in terms of obituaries this week, we do have one. Um, you may never have heard of the Volkswagen Scirocco, but if you listen to this show, I'm willing to bet you would have liked it. Um, basically, take a VW GTI, uh, squish the back end a little bit, and never offer it in four doors, and that's the Scirocco. Um, it's a small two-door hatchback that uh, could be had with engines ranging from meh to hmm. Uh, and VW has ma been making it for more than 40 years. Um, but if you're thinking, well, a squished two-door GTI sounds a bit redundant with the GTI, given that it's already a pretty small car, you're right. Uh, not to mention that Volkswagen also makes the Polo an even smaller hatchback than the GTI that they just don't sell here in the States. So the Scirocco, while a cool car, just didn't really have a place uh, in the lineup. No more niche to carve out, so it it found itself carved out of the lineup, which is kind of a bummer because it was a pretty cool-looking car. So I don't really have a an intro worked up for a rental review segment, but given the increasing 
frequency with which I am having to rent cars for business travel, I'm starting to think I need to create one. Um, today and tomorrow, I'm uh, driving uh, Nissan Altima. Uh, so I thought I would take a sort of deep dive into uh, what this car is like since I did the same thing for the Nissan Rogue. Um, but specifically, I'm driving the 2017 Nissan Altima 3.5 SR, uh, which is the mid-range option above the entry-level S and, and below the range-topping SL. Um, this basically means it comes with bigger wheels and a push-button ignition. Uh, and if this sounds a bit familiar, you're right. The Nissan Rogue I took on my tour of northern Indiana was also the mid-range option. Uh, the key here is that 3.5 number in the name. Uh, while the Rogue had the, the really wheezy 2.5-liter four-cylinder that had 170 horsepower and 175 foot-pounds of torque, this Altima has the same 3.5-liter V6 I had in my G35 Coupe, meaning around 300 horsepower and around the same torque figure. The problem is, like the Rogue, this puts that power down through a continuously variable transmission. Although, like the Rogue, though, it gets around 30 highway miles per gallon, which for a big, thirsty V6 is, is pretty good. Um, even though the road trip today was uh, just a straight line across Missouri, it's, it's been sort of a roller coaster, as I think of the Altima I'm driving and of the Rogue I've driven and back to my old G35. The Altima has, uh, I think, given me a, a better understanding of the Rogue's place in the world, and it's reminded me of several things, which I'll get into. Uh, first, though, the exterior. Honestly, I was never super enthusiastic about the looks of the Altima, with the sort of checkmark, weird L-shaped headlights and taillights that Nissan is putting on every car from the Z to the Maxima. I think the Altima, though, I, I think it pulls it off this look off the best, probably because it's the least intrusive to the rest of the design. The L's aren't super huge the way they are on the Maxima, um, and they don't accentuate the sort of catfish look that the, the 370Z has. Um, I, I pulled over along the cornfield to take a few sunset photos and shot a few of the car, which uh, one of which I put up on Instagram, which you guys can check out, uh, at Always Drive. Um, and I found myself actually admiring the shape of the car and, and several of the details of the car. I mean, some of it's a little generic looking and, and the like shape around the license plate and that sort of chrome thing above it. The, you'll find that on pretty much any sedan these days, and, and this car is never going to top my list of most vehicle, beautiful vehicles, but I'm liking it more and more as I see it. Um, Inside, again, it, it's surprisingly good. The seating position is really highly customizable. I have the fully adjustable electronic seats, um, lumbar support. I wish it had more side bolsters, um, but the, the seats are, are generally pretty good. Not nearly as good as the G35s or as good as the Mazdas, um, but the controls are all wit laid out. Um, I really love the G35 because it felt like I was just cocooned in, in like the cockpit of a jet fighter and and you get a similar sort of cockpit feel in the Altima and that you feel like you're in the car and not on the car like you do in the Rogue and, and many other vehicles. Um, in 300 miles of straight driving, my back didn't really hurt and although my legs were stiff, it wasn't any worse than I'd have in the Mazda, which I think has great seats, like I said. 
Um, the controls uh, then the center stack they aren't luxurious but that's honestly not the point of the Ultima you want luxury you're going to get a Q50 um, they're very similar to the Rogue in that they function perfectly fine but aren't really inspiring or interesting the armrests though are very comfortable and cushy and I was able to uh, fit an entire folding ladder in the passenger seat when it was folded back all the way which don't ask um, the Ultima reminded me um, what it was like to live in a time without automatic climate controls, though, where you constantly have to fiddle and adjust the temperature and then adjust the fan dial and then go back to adjusting the temperature to achieve maximum comfort instead of just putting it at 68 and then trusting that it will do its own thing. Um, my real only gripe, though, is that between the speedometer and the tachometer, there's a small display with information on fuel mileage and range and, and some other things. And instead of being aligned with the rest of the instrument cluster where it's flat and facing you, it's sort of leaned back at like 30 degree angle in the display. So you're never really looking at it straight on. And it's, it's not like you can't read it okay. It's just weird that it's not straight with the rest of the instrument cluster. And they don't know why they did that. It it compromises some screen space just because of the angle. Um, but in terms of the overall entertainment system, like the Rogue, it's, it's pretty bare bones, but the speakers, again, are really good. The system provides good separation of lows, mids, and highs, so your music never gets really muddled, even if you have to play it somewhat loud. Um, that said, the road noise was never really bad, so you don't even have to drown it out with music, which is nice. Um, and then there's the powertrain. Uh, having driven the Rogue pretty recently, I was fully prepared to hate this car when bu the budget guy told me I was getting an Altima. But then I got out to the car, and I started loading my camera gear in the trunk, and I saw, oh shit, this has the 3.5 badge on it. That's a really, really good engine. And sure enough, it's a really, really good engine. Uh, what lets it down a bit is that it's paired with this continuously variable transmission. That said, whereas the Rogue was constantly hunting for the right point in the power band to deliver the speed that I wanted at the time when I wanted it, with the V6, the speed is always there. Re regardless where you are in the power band, uh, so the CVT doesn't seem nearly as incompetent. There there are some stutters sometimes, but by and large, it gets it right and delivers responsive power even when sport mode isn't engaged. For some reason, this SR model, it comes with paddle shifters, which on a CVT is basically the same as putting paddle shifters on your horse. Uh, you can tap it and it's going to make more noise, but it's not really going to change what's going on. Uh, these paddles will make the engine rev higher, which, yes, will uh, elicit a little faster throttle tip in, but that 3.5 motor is so torquey that you really just don't need the shifters. Uh, I still don't like the CVT. I think it's unpredictable, and I don't like not knowing where the power is going to be when I, say, want to pass that Grand Caravan on a two-lane highway because I'm avoiding the Kansas toll roads, and because that means getting stuck behind Grand Caravans when there are plenty of oncoming semi-trucks, also avoiding the tollway. That said, I could not live with the CVT and the Rogue's 2.5 motor. I could learn to live with it 
in the Altima with the 3.5 just because that power is always there. In terms of driving, obviously you have generous power, but the thing handles pretty well too. Uh, it's a firmer ride, but it's never jarring. It, it manages to be the opposite of the Rogue in which you felt every bump, but never felt like you could take any speed into the corners. The Altima can carry that speed into the corners without breaking your spine. The steering is direct, but numb, and that is probably my least favorite part about driving this car. You can point it any direction you want, and it'll go there, as far as I've seen, but you get no communication from the car on where you are in terms of its limits. You never feel what the tires are doing, either through the pedals or through the wheel. Um, no feeling through that wheel means you don't have the confidence to take corners that quickly, which in a family sedan, it's understandable. But from an enthusiast standpoint, still a little disappointing. Not that, you know, you ever felt any better communication in a Camry or an Accord. When I drove the Rogue, I said that overall I couldn't understand why people would buy it over its competitors. For the Ultima, it's the total opposite. Why would you get the Camry or Accord instead of this? Uh, yes, even further, why why would you get the Sonata or Malibu or Ford Fusion? Which, yes, I know my wife has. It's more fuel efficient and less fun, and that's why. Priorities. But the Ultima is a very, very good car that gets... Uh, it's, it's pretty rewarding to drive and, and offers a lot of creature comforts. It, it reminded me of my G35 and how it used to put a smile on my face every time I buried the pedal. You can get almost that same sensation in a family sedan in the Altima. But for hauling all my camera gear, it's a stretch. I have filled the trunk and the passenger seats, and it's a good thing this is a solo run because I wouldn't have been able to drive with someone else in the car, which with the Rogue, I could and did. So in this regard, the Rogue is a slightly more useful Altima for people with hauling needs, even though you can't get it with the same V6, which is a damn shame because that would probably have changed a lot of my opinion about the Rogue. Um, it's not that I appreciate the Rogue anymore after having driven the Altima, but maybe I understand its place a little bit better. Maybe not relative to its peers, but certainly relative to Nissan's other cars. I really do, though, appreciate the Nissan Altima at least with the 3.5. So this week, um, I've been listening to a lot of stories and podcasts about the need for sleep and how if you're not getting eight hours, you're basically a semi-functioning zombie um, who are, are, are killing yourself uh, uh, slowly and sometimes a little more quickly. Uh, in the interest of getting my own self to bed before a 6 a.m. call tomorrow, your call to action this week is to go get some sleep. Now, here's some audio of the Nissan Altima Australian V8 supercar, which should put you right to sleep. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. 